I'm going to go on a massive, massive tangent right now, completely out of nowhere. It's the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Hey, hey, welcome to episode 42, the Jackie Robinson edition of the podcast. This one was the easiest athlete to pick based on their jersey number. Robinson broke the color barrier for baseball back in 1947 with the Dodgers, coincidentally the team in the World Series right now. Each year, Major League Baseball has Jackie Robinson Day, which is important, and he was a beauty. Imagine previously not being able to play a sport simply because of the color of your skin, or vote, or use a bathroom, etc. We've come a long way as a society, and that's fantastic, but there's clearly a lot of work to be done in race relations. Why, why can't we all just embrace our differences? Doesn't it make it so much better? I personally love meeting someone who is different than me. It's absolutely ridiculous and horrendous to even consider, even consider hating someone based on the color of their skin, their religion, sexual orientation, whether they're transgendered, etc. It absolutely blows my mind and it pisses me off. It makes me so angry when people hate others simply because they're different. Here's a pro tip. Don't be a f***ing asshole. My guest today is most definitely not one. And he's an absolute legend. Simply put, he's one of the funniest and greatest characters I've ever been around in my lifetime. And I'm excited to have him on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Okay, and now welcome on my great friend, Phil McSween. I've talked him up large in the intro, and I know he'll deliver. He's a field producer, a.k.a. horse racing journalist at Woodbine Racetracks in Toronto, and used to work at TSN. He's a huge Chicago sports fan, so I'll do my best to get him riled up about that. Welcome to the H Dog Pod, Phil. Thanks a lot, Hound Dog. Great to be with you, my friend. Yeah, I'm uh, super pumped to have you on. You'll, uh, I know you. Like I said, you will deliver. No questions asked. I'm, uh, I'm very fired up about this. So, uh, let's talk about the horse racing. As I mentioned off the top, there, I know very little about it myself, but I did watch the uh, the race to today. We're we, uh, recording this on the Saturday. Uh, Mighty Heart fell just short of winning the Canadian Triple Crown. You were there. How was the feeling when the horse came up just short? Well, he didn't come up just short, Mike. He was well, beaten decisively. He was beaten true. decisively. Yeah. Um, but to to be honest, I mean, I know what you're saying. Um, it was uh, one person trackside basically said what we all felt, and that was the air came out of the balloon. I yeah. mean, he uh, he took us on such a ride for those first two uh, legs, winning the Queen's Plate unexpectedly at thirteen to one, and then changing tactics and showing more of a come from behind style in the second leg. Um, and, and winning at Fort Erie uh, to, to go two for two and then come back to Woodbine. And his father was bred for the grass, so there was every sign that he would be able to handle it. But unfortunately, um, he was a little bit headstrong early in the race, fighting the rider, and he used up a lot of energy in that first uh, two-thirds of the race and didn't have much for the final third and was checked in seventh in the end. His stablemate, Belichick, named after the, uh, the, the Patriots' legendary coach, um, roared by him and all the others and won by like four or five lengths and uh, vindicated himself because he's always been looked at as a very as a very promising horse and, and he lived up to that today but as far as the mighty heart story goes I, I have to admit driving home I was I was a little bit I was a little bit sad like uh, just in the sense that expected a bit more of a better race a better better finish a, you know more drama um, and unfortunately it didn't happen that way, but the, and his rider said it as well. Daisuke Fukumoto, who, um, some people will blame for the ride. I don't, um, I'm not a, I'm not a jockey knocker. Why, um, uh, Dice, why, why would they blame him? Well, some people would say that Dice, Daisuke, uh, got engaged, um, midway through the race with a long shot. Uh, another horse called Kunal, who was like a hundred to one. He should have known. Some people say Dice K should have known that was a long shot outside him and not to waste energy running head and head with him for a few furlongs in the, in the race. And basically when you do that, that kind of takes out, you know, it's like using gas in your tank. If you go hard, uh, you know, you're not going to have anything to finish and, and whatever. So some people might blame Dice, but um, and, and the way I looked at it, um, the, the horse was kind of keen and Dice was trying to like, ration out the speed to get him to, to go the mile and a half because none of these horses have ever been that far um so it's a very tricky thing to try to get a horse to 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 you know ration out that speed and save something for the final part of it and dice dice and the horse were fighting early in that 
kind of doomed them, I think, um, fortunately. So it was kind of sad. Yeah, and you mentioned, obviously, Belichick won the race. Uh, so my question that I wrote down was, why does Belichick ruin everything? <laughs> yeah, Belichick, um, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't think Belichick was wearing a hoodie, but no, I, we went, actually went around for the TSM broadcast before before the race, uh, earlier in the day, to, to get some uh, shots of the horses in their stalls. And Belichick was alert. He was, he was, uh, you know, he was fully mentally there. You could see in the stall that he was ready to run later in the day, whereas Mighty Heart was kind of taking a nap. And Brian Williams kind of played up the fact that he was having a pregame nap like athletes do. But um, yeah, Belichick. I mean, he was fresher too. Belichick hadn't. Belichick finished second on September. Mighty Heart, and then he'd been given like the next month off, whereas you know Mighty Heart. Whoa, it was a lot fresh. Whoa, you're uh, you're cutting out pretty uh, pretty crazy there. <laughs> Hello. Yes. That's hilarious. No, oh. uh, you're cut out there for a second. Yes. It, yeah, it was. You know, Belichick <laughs> vindicated himself for sure today. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, how do you know? Like, um, either a race uh, before the race, like, how can you tell and spot? Like, okay, this horse has it today, or this one definitely doesn't. I mean, a lot of times, you know, you'll see a horse in a post parade. What I look for is a. I look for a shiny coat. Um, I look for their coat kind of gleaming. I have a healthy horse. I like to see a horse on his toes or her toes, head up, alert, ears ears pinned up, you know, confident. And uh, so a lot of times you'll see it. If a horse doesn't look good, they'll be washed out. They'll be sweaty. Um, there was one horse in the, in the race today, number 10, I believe. I can't remember who it was, but he was all washed up getting into the gate, loading into the gate. And I just thought that's not a good sign for him. Um, so you want to see a horse cool, calm, composed, confident, as opposed to a horse that's nervous, uh, sweating, you know, antsy, uh, that type of thing. Really, in a horse race, it's all about the use of your energy. And as we saw with Mighty Heart, he expended energy early, did not have it late. If you're expending energy before a race, getting sweaty, acting up, uh, throwing, you know, just being uh, unruly, energy is not going to be used in your race, and, and generally it plays out like that. And how, uh, just in a general sense, before uh, a, rate, a horse, sorry, becomes a big uh, star, how can you tell, like, uh, how can you differentiate between the different horses? Like, this one is just going to be unbelievable. Like, uh, what's the what's the tell that you, you know this this horse is going to be a star? Well, generally, you know, it, it's about, the, they're called thoroughbreds. So, with it's generally, the sign is the breeding of the horse. Like, who is their mother? Who is their father? Were, there, were they successful on the racetrack? Um, that can generally pedigree translate, um, into a good racehorse. Mind you, you like in a, with mighty hurts example, again, he, his sire was not really well known. And, uh, a lot of people thought, wow, that's, you know, this is pretty interesting. This horse is succeeding in his, in his lineage isn't standout. They're not standouts, but, um, so basically pedigree will generally tell you, you know, something about the horse. Um, uh, the, who their parents were, but uh, you know, and it. Jeez, cut it again. Belichick himself, actually, his. I'm just looking at his uh, his breeding lines, and uh, his father won the Belmont Stakes in 1999, I believe it was, and that's a mile and a half race in New York, one of the Triple Crown Jewels in the United States on the dirt. Um, so he was bred to go a mile and a half, and it showed today, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you do you ever uh, wager on the horses yourself? And uh, what's the longest shot you've ever seen actually win a race? Oh, definitely. I, lo- I love to I love to put a shackle down here and there. Um, the the longest shot. Well, uh, I think the biggest price winner I've ever seen is uh, was uh, in 1993 at the Breeders' Cup Classic. A horse called Arcon. Uh, European horse that came in to run in California. He went off at 133 to one. Uh, generally, if a horse goes off at whatever something to one, you're going to get double the money back. So he went off at 133 to one. So a two dollar win ticket returned a record 269 dollars. So yeah, 268. That's uh, wow. 133 to one won a race. Eh? That's that is insane. An average fan can look at a tote board. And you'll see 99 to one, but that's as high as the tote board goes. 
um, you won't know until after the race if the horse actually went off even higher, like triple digit off. Oh, oh, so they've 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 changed the uh, that because I I did notice today, yeah, when uh, Muddy Hart was up against the horse that was ninety nine to one, I was like, oh my god, for a while there, I was thinking, can a hunt basically a hundred to one uh, horse win? That would have been nuts. Yeah, and I think that horse actually went off at a hundred and six to one. Like I said, the, the odds board can only go up to ninety nine. So um, when you see a ninety nine to one shot board, he it, the horse will even higher than that. Wow, that's. Uh... That'd be crazy to, uh, to to bet on a horse like that. I went to the Woodbine racetracks for the first time actually last year and uh, saw you there, and you were gracious and showed me and my friends uh, marked uh, D Rock and Two Mom around. Uh, what do you do at Woodbine? It looked uh, it was amazing there. I had tons of fun. Well, thanks for coming out. Um, you know, you kind of sullied my reputation on your call, but I mean, other than that, I mean, <laughs> I'm glad you had a great and your friends. Uh, as for what I do, I work in the television department there. I've been there since, uh, 2005 and I basically put together features, uh, write stories, video for broadcast, produce them, research them, write them, report the source materials, the video, the pictures, uh, do all the interviews. And I sit with an editor and do all that. But, um, it's been a, it's been an absolute joy to be there since, since then. And today with mighty heart was my first chance to see a live attempt at a triple crown and for it to end the way it um very uh, very sad um i mean i'm glad the horse came out well that's that's the good thing the horse came out healthy he'll race another day but it's just kind of an anticlimactic ending yeah no question about it uh, one of the highlights when i was there uh, last year at woodbine racetracks you actually allowed us to uh, go into the room where the uh man calling the race uh, robert geller was there and he was absolutely amazing this guy was so good he would go essentially in and out of character. He would, uh, you know, put his headset on and say, "Call the race for a few seconds or whatever." Uh, then he'd take the headset off and talk to us. It was it was unbelievable how outstanding this guy was, and he was so friendly and so nice. Uh, what do you have to say about him? He is just amazing, eh? Yes, he is. Robert's a, a true gentleman of the game. He's been broadcasting or sorry, calling races for many years, and he's done it in many places um, in the United States and New Mexico at a racetrack. He's holy crap this is this connection i don't know what is going on uh this is unbelievably uh it's pretty funny actually but uh you're dropping out like uh like crazy sorry hold on let me i'm gonna go upstairs um <laughs> yeah no robert's uh robert's called races all over uh the planet um he's been in the game a long time you think he started at woodbine about four or five years ago um just a true gentleman of the game and uh loves what he does and Loves to entertain fans that come and visit, like yourself and your friends. Oh, he was like I said, it was I I I just marveled at his ability to be able to go from calling the race and then instantly talking to us like we'd known him uh, our whole lives, and then went right back to the race. It was uh, amazing, and he replaced a legend uh, at Woodbine, right? He did. He replaced Danny Loisel, who retired after I think. 30 something years. Uh, Danny called like 55,000 races. He called five triple crown winners. Um, you know, that was, he was a legend, is a legend still just retired now. But, um, you know, I always, I always marvel at Robert because when you're replacing somebody like that, I mean, I know myself, I would be, I would be intimidated, but Robert never showed any inkling of fear at all and just went into the job and just picked up the torch and ran with it. Yeah, he's, uh, like I said, amazing. Uh, last question about horse racing before we uh, delve into some other stuff. Uh, at one of these races, have you ever worn one of those sweet, huge hats? And if not, uh, why not? Uh, I have, actually. I went down to the uh, to the Kentucky Derby in 2017. And I had a nice little fedora and uh, wore that. Um, you know, I like those kind of hats. But, uh, yeah, not too many times. I'm pretty much a ball cap kind of guy at, at wherever i go hmm. damn uh, i think you should change that because uh those hats uh whenever i see them uh at the kentucky derby and those other races are just they're they're amazing it's like those are so massive i don't think they're uh would be accepted anywhere else in the world other than at horse racing events no um yeah it's a good question uh i think back in the day you might have seen them at boxing events no. uh boxing you see a lot of fans of boxing matches wear those back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, those classic fedoras. 
But yeah, no, you don't see too many of them at the racetrack except on the big days now. And and I always actually, actually kind of ridicule some of those some of those uh, guys that show up with those things because they look like they were bought for the day, <laughs> and as soon as they're as soon as they leave the racetrack, they're gone. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, but no, there. I mean, if you get a good one, and uh, you put some money into it and uh, some thought into it, you can look pretty sharp at the races for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, last last question about horse racing. Uh, Woodbine. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, Kentucky Derby. Uh, Tell us about how awesome uh, that experience must just be uh, amazing. Yes, it was uh, 2017. We drove down, myself and some friends, and uh, we stayed in an Airbnb outside of Louisville. I've been down to Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky, a few times for work, but um, this time it was for pleasure. And I mean, Kentucky is a horse state, and everywhere you go, um, at least around where we were, there's horse memorabilia everywhere. If you love the horse like I do, um, Kentucky's the state to be because they absolutely idolize horses. The, uh, the, the Kentucky, Kentucky itself is a hotbed of the breeding industry of thoroughbreds. So all, a lot of the best stallions on the planet reside in Kentucky year round and, and a lot of breeding business to help regenerate the breed year in, year out happens in Kentucky. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a place I haven't been. And as I said off the top, I'm not a huge horse racing fan, but that sounds like something, uh, hopefully, uh, in the future, I, I will definitely have to go to, uh, without question. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to a topic that, uh, I, I just know that you're obviously a huge Chicago sports fan. As I mentioned, uh, how do you remember the Jay Cutler era for the Chicago bears? <laughs> I, I remember it very, uh, w- with a lot of, uh, great anger. I, I never liked, I never liked Jay Cutler. Um, I thought he was a pansy, uh, he he won. I've never seen a I've never seen a, a player so polarizing with a fan base yep. in Chicago as as Jay Cutler was. There was there were you know a good portion of the fans that loved him would apologize for anything that he ever did wrong in terms of what he did on the field, and then there were fans like me that would just you know constantly point to the fact that he only had one playoff win in the whole time he was there. And, uh, you know, generally the time that he pulled himself out of the game against the Packers, uh, citing a knee problem, he basically quit on the team. Um, and he was just, he was just a big, just a big baby really in a lot of respects. You know what, though, in fairness, I look at his passing completion percentage and, you know, he did complete like over 60% of his passes. It looked like to me, like when I go back, but uh, I don't remember it fondly, Mikey. Well, uh, I want to ask you about that NC title game against Green Bay. So you actually believe that Cutler quit on the team there? Like it just seemed like a, I can't imagine it's the NFC title game. I can't imagine if he can't, uh, or sorry, if he could have played that he wouldn't have. That just seems crazy to me. No? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it was one of the most bizarre episodes I think in Chicago sports history. Um, he it didn't. I don't think he had a torn ligament in his knee. I don't think that there was any structural damage to his knee. But it looked like he pulled himself out of the game, and then just rode a bike the rest of the game on the sideline. When we were one, within one game of going to the Super Bowl, and we ended up losing that game, it was a great relief performance I think by Cade McNown. Oh, uh, um, Caleb Haney. Caleb Haney came in that game. Sorry, yes, Caleb Haley. Yeah, I get those backups mixed up because we've had so many bloody quarterbacks. Yeah. But um, he came in and played well, gave us a shot, and I think we only lost 21-14 or something, but that one really hurt because we were we were in the game of going to the Super Bowl um, and at home, and we lost. So that one really hurt. And Jay didn't show a lot of heart in that game, so not a lot of fond memories of Jay Cutler. <laughs> I love your nickname for him. Uh, please tell us that. Uh, oh, Crudler? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I just find I always giggle. Jay Crudler. I think I had another one for him, but it's not fit for air. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess uh, I always liked him. It's easier to like a quarterback, I suppose, when he's not on your team and you're sort of uh, watching from afar a little bit. But uh, when you look at the, uh, the quarterback Chicago has had the last uh, 20-some years, I mean, uh, you'd have to say, if, uh, without question, uh, I think, that he's the, the best one. Uh, would he not be? Well, maybe in terms of statistics, but not in terms of uh, wins or big, big wins or clutch wins. That was my other problem with him. He wasn't clutch. Um, you know, he won one playoff game in 10 years or eight, nine years with us. Um, uh, I don't think he's Canton bound on that record. 
No, I wouldn't say that. And speaking of playoff games, I can't. I still, honestly, to, I swear to God, cannot understand for the life of me. I won't watch Seahawks games with people who are cheering for Seattle, let alone people who are cheering against them actively. As you were, uh, we watched a playoff game many, many years ago. Why on earth did I ever agree to go and watch a playoff game with you? And of course, Seattle lost in overtime, and it crushed my soul in my life. Uh, I, I just, I, it boggles my mind. I ever did that. I know, and the fact that you lost to Jay Cutler must hurt even more. <laughs> I remember after that game, uh, overtime loss, I, I remember just uh, walking around the street for a, a couple times, doing a, a few laps, and uh, it was, uh, I did everything in my, in my power not to just unleash a massive tirade. Because whoever lost that game, the fans of that team would have easily been able to get extremely angry because they both were basically trying to choke it away. Yes, I mean, you know, you, you took the loss really hard. You were a young, angry man at the time. I'm still uh, and then you uh, then you discovered man. then you discovered baconators and you mellowed somewhat. But I mean, <laughs> you know I don't blame you. You, you know, I gotta give you a lot of credit though. You kept your cool pretty well that day and it was a tough it was a tough loss, no doubt about it. I mean Robbie Gold kicked the field goal in overtime and the game could have gone either way, Mikey. Yeah, he, um, yeah, he's but clutch. You guys played great on the road though in that game, so nothing nothing to be ashamed of. Oh man, I uh, yeah, I just uh, I, like I said, I, I obviously I lo- I loved you, but I was like I can't believe why would I ever watch a playoff game, let alone any game, even week one of the of the regular season, I wouldn't watch with the the opposing fan. It just blows my mind that I, that I did that. But uh, man, you said I was young and angry. I'm still pretty much I'm uh, whatever 13 years older and still pretty much as bitter. It's uh, it's so funny. <laughs> Seattle is obviously at this point uh, when we're recording an uh, undefeated team five and zero. Yeah, Seattle lost a heartbreaking overtime game to Arizona the next day. So, but it's funny how like every single one of their games is insane. Like they, they they're incapable of playing a boring game, which is fun, of course, but it's really really stressful. Let me ask you though, what did you really think when Pete Carroll decided to pass on a goal line against New England in the Super Bowl? <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because uh, I've talked about this a few times in this podcast. Uh, I absolutely love the fact they passed. I didn't like the fact that they did that type of pass. I hated the fact that they threw a slant to a speed receiver who wasn't very physical or very tall in Ricardo Lockett. I hated that aspect of it, but I love the fact they, they passed because everyone in the world thought they were going to run. That's exactly why you don't run, just to try to catch them off guard. You don't think Beast Mode could have made a yard to win the Super Bowl? Well, he could have, but I, this is another aspect. I was talking to my buddies because, of course, it's hard to convince people that I'm right in this one. I get that. But in that game alone, Beast Mode had four chances on third and one or fourth and one to gain one yard. Four chances in that game to gain one yard? He didn't do it every single time. So, And, and there's a crazy statistic I saw the next year, um, which is insane because, obviously, Marshawn Lynch was an incredible running back. He is one of the worst uh, with, a, I think it's minimum like 500 carries or something like that. One of the worst running backs in NFL history with one yard to go, which sounds ludicrous because he's such a great running back, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming the fact that in that game, four chances to gain one yard, he didn't do it. That pl- had to have played it, uh, a factor into it. But of course, everyone just ripped the play. I understand they didn't get the play. It looks bad. But if Pete Carroll completes that pass, not Pete Carroll, sorry. Pete Carroll called the play to complete the pass and Russell Wilson completes it. No one's saying it's a terrible call. Everyone's saying it's a gutsy call and an incredible call. Narrative completely changes based on result in football. No more so in that uh, in that instance. Your passion is incredible, M. Bang. Like I, I, I can't convince people. The whole reason why you pass is because everyone's expecting you to run. It's so simple. At the end of that first half, they actually threw for a touchdown and they got it. And they should, probably should have taken the field goal, but they went for the touchdown and they got it. And everyone's like, "What? Same thing. What a gutsy call! Pete Carroll shouldn't have done that, but he did. Amazing call! Blah 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 blah." It, it's only and Belichick at the end of that game also didn't call a timeout, which uh, would have had like I don't know, 25, 30 seconds left in the clock for Patriots. If Seattle completes the play, everyone's ripping Belichick then for not calling a timeout because then Tom Brady wouldn't have enough time to to win the game. It's amazing how narrative completely changes in football based on result. So I like the fact they passed. I didn't like the type of pass, though. Your your recall of those events is, is uh, amazing. Pass is intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Unreal. 
Yeah, it was that must have been a heartbreaker, man. I I I, I remember myself when uh, the Bears went to the Super Bowl against Indy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was 16 when they when the '85 Bears won, so I remember that pretty well. And that was an unbelievable year uh, when the the '85 Bears went rushed out over the whole entire NFL. But um, when they went to the Super Bowl it, after the '06 season, and they played Indianapolis, and we had uh, Rex Grossman. Mm-hmm. Rex had played well to get us to the Super Bowl, um, but in that Super Bowl, it was not his finest hour. And I remember Rick Riley of SI, who had his column in SI. He wrote a column that was in the back page, a uh, short one-page, 250, 400-word column about – he called it the abominable Grossman. And he, <laughs> and he basically described – a couple of possessions by Rex in the second half where it went from like just a keystone comedy cops series of errors where Grossman ended up fumbling, miss, you know, mishandling a snap, uh, getting sacked for 20 yards. And then it was like fourth and 41 or something. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it was, that game was, that game was in reach and we let that one get away. And I just remember the next day, um, going into work and walking by like newspaper, uh, machines like toronto suns or toronto stars and just seeing the headlines colts trample bears and we had we had had such a great year and for it to end like that hurt a lot but that's sports you know sports will take you to the pinnacle it'll take you to the valley and uh as fans that's that's the contract that we must agree to to sign you know uh like today for example with mighty heart like I mean, I, I was I was completely enamored of what he had done. I was really hoping he'd finish strong and possibly give us that triple crown, that elusive one. But uh, it was it was it wasn't to be. And uh, yeah, it's kind of sad, you know. But you just gotta move on, and we do. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, as I've always said about Rex Grossman and uh, J.P. Lossman, first both a first round drafted quarterbacks in the NFL. Never draft a guy with a name that essentially says they're not very good. Grossman and Lossman. No, 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 no. You, you can't. You can't draft a guy like that because it's a guaranteed bad player. Yeah, absolutely. You got to be careful with those names. Didn't uh, I swear that year? I thought uh, Kyle Orton played a, a huge amount of games that year, and Grossman came back. I want to say like week fifteen or something like that. I could be completely wrong about this, but wasn't it basically Kyle Orton? Wasn't there some sort of a faction of Bears fans that said? stick with Orton because he's been, uh, you know, our quarterback the whole year. Obviously it was mainly the defense that carried them there, but wasn't uh, Orton uh, the quarterback for most of that year? Yeah, I think, you know, I'd have to go back and look at it. It was like almost, uh, you know, over 10 years ago now, but uh, I think you're right. And I think Orton played a, played a strong, a, a strong bunch of games for us that year. And then Grossman did come back. And Grossman had a great playoff, though. He, I think he beat you guys. Or no, that was Cutler, sorry. But he beat, uh, I think it was um, <laughs> New Orleans in the uh, snow. It was a snow game um, to get the NFC Championship game to get to the Super Bowl. Blizzard in Chicago, but like almost like a winter wonderland blizzard. Grossman was on fire, played really well, got us there. And, you know, he started the Super Bowl. But you put Peyton up against Grossman. And you saw what we got. Like <laughs> the Bears got whooped. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to talk about another Chicago team because this one is weird to me. Because uh, I know you're a big White Sox fan, uh, and they played really, really well this year. They made the playoffs for the first time in many, many years. Uh, they let go of their uh, manager, uh, Rick Renteria. Uh, what's the deal with that? I, 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 that just seems crazy to me. They finally make the playoffs after all these years, and then they get rid of him. Uh, why the what the hell is going on with that? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, he was, he was never really cut out to be a manager. Um, he, you know, he had a little bit of experience with the Cubs before. I think he got fired with them. Somehow he was brought in with the White Sox a few years ago. The White Sox had endured six, seven, eight years of losing um, since, uh, since they made the playoffs. Well, probably 10 years since 2008. They brought in Robin Ventura uh, in 2012. He had a great three quarters of his first year, and then he, then the White Sox choked. They got caught late in September in 2012, and then the next three or four years under Robin Ventura were absolute hell. The team lost like 90 something plus games every year. It was an absolute. Adam Dunn, Adam Dunn left a left a scar on my White Sox soul. I I will never be able to undo. 
he was paid $56 million and struck out 720 times in three and a half years before oh we, the Oakland A's God. finally took him off our hands. But to re- answer the question about Renteria, he came in, um, he's a, he's a jovial, happy go lucky kind of guy that kind of could handle the Latino players on our roster. We, we have a roster full of young Latino stars and Renteria was able to, you know, you know, coalesce, get them to coalesce and play well with each other. And uh, we had a good year this year, uh, definitely made the playoffs, but Rick Renteria absolutely blew it in game three of the, of the series against Oakland. Our, our pitching staff runs about one, two deep. We had Lucas Giolito who started the series almost through a no hitter in game one. We won game one. Then Dallas Keuchel, who was brought in from Houston with that veteran experience. He did not pitch well in game two. We ended up losing and then in game three, um, the, it was very interesting to see who was going to get the ball in game three for us. Renteria selected a young kid named Dane Dunning, who who pitched well in a bunch of appearances this year. But he he started the game, pitched, got into a bit of a jam in the first inning, and Renteria panicked and pulled him. And then he brought in our first round draft pick, who's been who was called up, kid named Garrett Crochet. Big Randy Johnson type clone, six six eight, six ten, throws a hundred miles an hour. This kid been in the big leagues maybe like you know a couple of weeks, and he's been, now he's in the deciding game of a playoff series. He injured himself in the second or third inning and, and was pulled. Fortunately, there's no structural damage, so he should be okay. Just a strained uh, forearm, but all of a sudden, in the second inning, after Rick Renteria panicked and pulled Dane Dunning. The White Sox are using their situational guys, Oof. their lefties, righties, in the third and fourth innings. Yikes. And that wasn't going to lie. That was like Mighty Heart going out too quick in the race today. Like, we didn't have anything for late in the game, and we ended up losing. Um, and then, you know, in a series that we should have won. Uh, so, uh, Renteria was the scapegoat, justifiably so, in my view. And uh, he's gone. And... Uh, now they're talking about possibly bringing back Tony Larusa. I saw that. Yeah, that's a, who is seventy six years old. Wow. Um, you know, there's Tony. Tony managed the White Sox in the early '80s, and uh, we won the. But I say we because I bleed White Sox, so I'm, I feel like I'm part of the whole outfit myself. But um, he managed the team to the Western Division title in 1983 when they won 99 games and won the division by 20. Um, they, they ended up getting beat by Baltimore in the ALCS when there was only four teams in the playoffs, like total, like two in the AL, two in the NL. Baltimore ended up beating us in three, three out of five. Well, the series went four, and then Baltimore ended up winning the World Series. But uh, our Tony was fired a couple of years later by Ken Harrelson, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Hawk, who was our, who went on to become our GM. And there was always kind of like a lingering, uh, you know, regret about that throughout throughout the organization um, that we let Tony get away. And then he ended up going to Oakland and have great success there. And then with St. Louis as well. So possibly even entertaining bringing him back would be sort of a way to, you know, make amends for the mistake that was made letting him go way back in the early or mid 80s. So but he's 76 years old now. So what, what, I would really like this. I'd like to see Bruce Bochy. Okay. Okay. That'd be interesting. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously want to go, what three world series, I guess with the giants. Uh, he, I, he's I, 60, he's 65, but I know, uh, you know, who knows? Like, and there's also talk of AJ Hinch and maybe AJ Persinski, who's got no wow. managerial experience. And we saw how that, well, how well that worked out with Robin Ventura. So I'd like an experienced guy if we get one. Here's here's my thought. Uh, bring in uh, Tony Larusa in an advisory role, but bring back Ozzy Guillen as the manager. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I like Ozzy, but Ozzy wore out his welcome with his with his antics and his controversial tongue and his just erratic ways. You know, like he he won a World Series and then believe me, in 05 when the when the White Sox won that World Series that. Took me to took took me to the summit, um, and one of my I want it's a bucket list thing when you're a fan. Your team wins the World Series. It's interesting that the national U.S. media completely forgets the Chicago White Sox won the 2005 yep. World Series, yep. and not only did they win it, they went 11 and one. 
they dethroned the defending champ Boston Red Sox in a three-game sweep, and then they swept the Houston Astros in the World Series to win it. But the national media forgets that. But anyways, um, Ozzy did a great job, but uh, he was fired for a reason too. And I just don't like to go backwards. I like to go forwards, you know? Hmm. Well, okay, then go forwards with John Gibbons. I, I just want John Gibbons uh, managing again. It's actually been my take that in a couple of years, the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, with uh, after Charlie Montoyo does okay, maybe decently well with them, that they'll bring in back John Gibbons for a third tour duty. Uh, that's what I what I'd, be, I'd want because I, I just want him managing somewhere. I think Gibbons is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not super astute with John Gibbons' managerial record, but I do like the man. I think he he's a good old school baseball man, players manager, no nonsense. Uh, He's got a great manner about him, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, he, he manages again in the big leagues. Yeah, and uh, like I said, uh, Anthopos and, and uh, Gibbons back for the Blue Jays in a couple of years would be amazing. I would love that. Uh, the Blackhawks actually, obviously, a huge uh, passion of yours. They've won three uh, cups, but haven't been well. They made the playoffs this last year in the uh, uh, expanded playoffs, but they haven't uh, been competitive for about uh, I don't know four or five years or so. What do you think about uh, them essentially admitting they're going through a rebuild? Well, they didn't deserve to make the playoffs, to be honest. Uh, I don't think they play well enough to qualify, but in the expanded playoff, they were granted access. And they kind of gave us a bit of a thrill beating Edmonton in that series, um, which was pretty cool. And they played uh, they played a pretty credible series against the Las Vegas Knights um, and our former tender, Robin Leonard. Um but they were bounced, and now here we go with the rebuild. There's there's a lot of miscommunication, obviously, between our general manager and our core stars, Taves, Kane, Seabrook, Keith, and a lot. Those guys didn't know that our GM was going to flip the switch on a rebuild. <laughs> Jonathan Taves has been quite vocal about that. Um, I, personally, I think Stan Bowman should have been fired a few years ago after the Blackhawks were swept by Nashville. He went in front of the cameras and, and almost cried, saying this was never going to happen again. And then it happened like, you know, we didn't make the playoffs for the next, the next two, three years after he did that. And then, you know, this year we didn't really deserve to qualify again, but somehow managed to. And then he just let the only goalie in the history of the franchise to win two Stanley Cups, Corey Crawford, he let him go for nothing. So Stan Bowman is uh, persona non grata right now for me, or maybe forever. Um, he, he basically inherited some teams that were built for him and had the success. And his standard move is to bring guys back like Patrick Sharp or uh, Andrew Shaw or, you know, some of these guys. And he went on, he's bringing back Brandon Perry now. Uh, like, again, let's move forward, you know, um, so Stan Bowman has worn out his welcome with me and I think a lot of fans and and I think some of the core veterans like Taves. Taves, I think, is completely baffled of what this guy's up to. So, you know, uh, and his drafts have been terrible. I mean, they, they've been really bad. I mean, they've half of, you know, about 85 percent of the guys that he drafts, you never, ever hear of after draft day. So he's had a couple here and there like the Brinkett sod who was just traded again. Um, but his draft record's terrible. He's he's in love with these American development players and a lot of these Europeans and Chicago Blackhawks need more Canadians. And that's not xenophobic. That's just my that's just my fact, my 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 heartfelt uh, belief. Because when the Blackhawks were winning cups, like most of our core were Canadians. Absolutely. Uh, that's I'm going to go on a massive massive tangent right now, completely out of nowhere. In the distance, I'm watching. I'm seeing fireworks going on right now. What the hell could be possibly being celebrated right now for fireworks? Um, I have no idea. Like, I'm seeing uh, a huge firework uh, thing going on right now, and I'm completely baffled. Maybe they came out with a new Baconator? <laughs> <laughs> or uh, the McDonald's that had a couple sweet uh, uh, McChicken uh, clone uh, burgers, but... What is going on? So what are we, we, October, like late October here. Uh, I can't for the life of me figure out what the hell is going on with the fireworks right now. Weird. Maybe we found a solution to the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. (laughs) Maybe that would be uh, absolutely incredible. Man, it's been so long. Uh, (laughs) uh, Sorry to go on a tangent, but I I saw that and I was like uh, completely uh, bewildered as it were. Good word. Uh, I'll get you out of here on a couple of uh, questions here. Uh, I mentioned TSN off the top uh, that you used to work there. Before I got there, 
Uh, tell us about the night that you worked on the night, uh, that Todd Bertuzzi, Steve Moore incident. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a crazy night. Uh, Mike, uh, you know, when you go in, when you go into work, you, you go in, you look at the schedule, like the, uh, the, the game schedule and you'll, as an, as a highlight pack guy, you'll look at, uh, the game list and see what game the producers assigned you. And I just happened to get assigned that game. Um, the incident with Marcus Naslin and uh, Steve Moore had happened two games prior, I believe, where, you know, there was a little collision in the neutral zone. I didn't think it was that much, but the, the Canucks were crying bloody murder. Brad May was issuing bounties, I believe, on uh, Steve Moore. And then the teams met again in Denver. The, the incident happened in Denver. They met again in Denver the next game and nothing happened. Um, it was a, it was a raucous fire, fire wagon hockey game, like high scoring, but there was no rough stuff. And then they came back to Vancouver for the game that I was assigned. And, uh, you know, right off the hop draws, or there was, there were a lot of fights in the first period. Colorado had built a five, nothing lead in the first period. Steve Moore was challenged and beat um Matt Cook in a fight and you know it looked like it was issues you know Steve Moore had answered for any perceived transgression against uh Marcus Naslin um and then some other things happened I think Trevor Linden notched an assist to become the all-time points leader in the Vancouver Canucks franchise history so that had to be addressed had to be covered in the pack um, there were two goalie delay game penalties, pucks being fight over the glass, which was very odd that there were two. Um, and then the game got out of hand. Vancouver made a bit of a close. They closed it to six, two, I believe. And then all hell broke loose when Colorado opened up. And then, you know, in the third period, it was just, uh, it was open warfare and the Canucks were clearly going after more. Uh, they were in a foul mood being, being absolutely embarrassed at home. And you saw what you did with, uh, with Todd Bertuzzi stalking Steve Moore. Um, I had a double record on that. As anybody in the newsroom knows, you know, you're rolling on the Vancouver feed, you're rolling on the Colorado feed. So you're hoping to get the best of both feeds in terms of visuals and sound. And uh, so that's a lot of work ergonomically bouncing around to, to type shot descriptions from both games. And uh, I was able to, you know, I had some help from a good buddy of ours, Craig Chambers, primetime we call him great guy and uh, we were able to get the pack together but that was crazy and nowhere in my wildest dreams that did, did I ever think that you know when I was assigned that game that was going to turn into like uh, an international sort of incident like overnight that everybody was talking about across the world it seemed yeah well for those that don't know yeah Todd Bertuzzi basically attacked Steve Moore from behind and uh, you know took him out and Steve Moore, Moore never played in the NHL again it was absolutely wild Todd Bertuzzi after Steve Moore Grabs his shoulder, having a little chat with him. Grabs his sweater, gives him a whack. And piling on is Andre Nikolishin, and everybody's into it. Now we get a line brawl. Oh, Steve Moore's hurt really bad. Moore's head went into the ice. And now they need a trainer on the ice in a hurry here. They need more than just the trainers. They're calling for medical help for Steve Moore. And the score settling has gone too far. It was pretty crazy because uh, the game was, you know, it was a late game, like a 10, 10, 30 start. We had a 2 a.m. show and the game ended probably like around, you know, 1 a.m. or so. And so you're trying to, you're trying to get the pack together um, and you're just drowning in footage with all the, with all the, with the double feeds. So you're cross-referencing, was this look of this better? You're going back and forth with the two feeds, the Colorado, the Vancouver feeds. And then you also got to do the post report. So, Farhan Lodge on the phone from Vancouver in, in my ear, like telling me, okay, you know, these are the elements for the post report. So isn't it as a highlight pack guy, not only are you doing the highlight pack, you're also doing the post report, um, which is a lot of pressure. And uh, fortunately, you know, the, the producers at TSN, they're great. They usually assign somebody to help you, help you get it all together um, under crunch time. And again, prime time, Craig Chambers was amazing for me that night for sure. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can't even imagine. I've been in uh, some pretty crazy uh, moments at work, but no, nothing is as insane as uh, something like that. Especially because uh, the next day was the trade deadline day, so uh, you know there was a lot, a lot of stuff going on that night. Uh, absolutely wild. 
That's true. Yeah, it, it was crazy because, um, you, as you mentioned, trade deadline day, which is almost like Christmas, Easter, and New Year's at TSN um, because the network is – and I love the fact they are hockey crazy. Um, but, you know, we had all our, all the, all the big hockey personalities in, in the building that night that were kind of studying and getting ready for trade deadline day. And when all hell broke loose with Bertuzzi, they were all coming out of the woodwork asking me what happened. And I didn't really know any of them that well, but um, I'm trying to get my pack together and then also trying to field their questions as well. So, and Farham Algy on the phone from Vancouver. So I got a few gray hairs that night for sure. Um, but it was you know, those are the kind of moments that, um, or nights that kind of you get seasoned, you know, you kind of try to figure out how to manage your time and, and, and tell the story properly. And I was really happy with the final pack, like what, you know, thought that told the story pretty well. And it was a very physical hockey game, which I love too. I love those, those rough top hockey games. And, but it's just unfortunate that, uh, you know, Steve Moore was, was, uh, injured in that way. And, uh, I don't think Todd, Bertuzzi meant to permanently put him out of hockey, but that's what happened. And you have to be careful um, no matter what the score is, you know, how you try to address perceived uh, slights. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things before uh, I let you go here, Phil. Uh, first of all, uh, actually Rex Grossman started every single game for the Chicago bears that year. I thought for some reason, uh, Kyle Orton, I know Kyle Orton started a number of games, one of the years, but for some reason I thought, the Super Bowl year that they went there, uh, that uh, Orton played a lot of games. No, Rex Grossman actually played every single game. I, I was surprised by that. Uh, Me too. Yeah, and also, um, I'm reading, I Googled it, uh, October 24th apparently is National Baloney Day. Uh, I don't think people will be uh, doing fireworks for National Baloney Day, but um, it's possible. But I also don't know why it's uh, spelled Bologna. I've never understood that one. Why don't you spell it Bologna? <laughs> why is it spelled Bologna? <laughs> It doesn't even come close to baloney. I, I, I don't get that one. Why? Where do flies go at night? Oh, jokes. Where do flies go at night? Uh, I don't know. These these are the questions that kind of keep us up at night, Mike. You know? Like, oh, I seriously. I thought that was. I thought that was like a, a setup for a joke, and I'm like, uh, I don't know the answer to that one. That, that that is a good question, though. You're right. You know what's crazy though, and thank you for uh, for filling me in about uh, about Rex Grossman starting all those games when I thought that maybe Kyle Orton had played some of them. Yeah, it's totally amazing awesome. what our memories can do. I mean, mm-hmm. I generally think I have a good memory, but it's amazing when you go back and you actually look at the the records. And there's so many great websites that you can track, you know, things with, and go back and do the actual research and revisit that time. And uh, it's amazing how many times I've found over the years that my memory has, has been faulty and that I'm actually learned something thinking that I knew the history of it when I actually, in fact, have gotten fuzzy about it over the years. Yeah. Uh, same for me. No doubt about it. Uh, well, Phyllis, this has been awesome. Uh, it's crazy. I met you 15 years ago. Uh, what are the odds on this? Uh, speaking of odds that we did, uh, earlier in, in the episode about, uh, horse races, uh, I, in, uh, Brayside near Ampere where I grew up, Visiting my friends Julian and David, you're their uncle. I just happened to visit them uh, one Christmas in 2005. You uh, had worked at TSN for many years at that point. What are the odds I go over there and you happen to be there and you told me about you know TSN and how things were? Uh, I, I I can't thank you enough for that. That was amazing and uh, just like again, it's insane. <laughs> it's insane that that happened. I'm so thankful you uh, were able to give me a few tips because the next month is when I started my inter- internship in 2006. So I'll forever, forever be uh, thankful for that. Well, Mike, thank you. Uh, and, you know, thank you so much uh, because I'm proud of you for, you know, what you did, man. You went with that opportunity and you've turned it into a career for yourself. And that's all you, man. Congratulations on that, my friend. Thank you so much. And Phil, this has been a blast. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, hopefully. Uh, Seattle and uh, Chicago. Uh, I didn't even talk to you about the current state of the Chicago Bears. Maybe I'll ask that right now. Uh, do you think they're for real, the Bears? Uh, they have a great record, but uh, do you think they're they're actually for real? No, they're not for real. <laughs> they, they haven't. They haven't. Uh, they're they're like one of the worst rushing teams in football. Um, they're doing it with smoke and mirrors. And uh, when they meet a real opponent, they'll they'll be exposed. Yeah. So the Bears lost to the Rams by fourteen points. So.
As I was saying, uh, perhaps Chicago and Seattle will meet in the playoffs again. And if they do happen to do so, I can guarantee you one thing. I will not be watching the game with you. No chance. I will be watching the game hold up in my own uh, in my condo without anybody else there because I can't even stand being with another soul during uh, you know Seattle games. I love your passion. I love your your isolation during those passionate moments. And uh, you're amazing, Mikey. No, thank you so much, uh, Phil. It's been a blast, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Hound Dog. Take care, but thanks for having me on. You too. Bye. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. I was just going to say, I was literally just in the moment of saying, great discussion, Phil. Loved it. But so much fun. And then he did the classic hung up on me. But he didn't hang up on me, to be fair. Half the time, as I've discussed in previous episodes, half the time it's like, does a per- did they wait? There's like, you know, like that one, two second pause. And, and I wait. Because, you know, make sure it's a clean out for the editor, Grant Nabesy Roberts. And I'm like, are, are we discussing how great the episode was? Or are they hanging up and no longer talking to me? And I honestly feel it's about 50-50 where people will hang on the line. We'll have a nice little chat afterwards. And the other half of the time, we don't talk about it at all, which is kind of funny. I really thought he was going to hang on there, which is funny. He didn't. Obviously, nothing against him. Basically, I said goodbye to him. So, but no, it was a total blast having him on the podcast and talking about horse racing, which I don't know a whole lot about. But I absolutely urge you guys, when you're able to, I was hoping to go again this year to Woodbine Racetracks. Tons of fun there last year. Uh, I was intimidated. Uh, I'm not a huge, like I said, uh, horse racing fan, but I feel I know a, a decent amount of it. But when I went there, I was like, oh, my God, like what is going on here with you know, all these bets and that you can make and all these uh, races and all this stuff. And at first I was a little bit like, oh, my, I was overwhelmed as opposed to being whelmed. But uh, pretty quickly, you start to realize that they have, uh, you know, guides uh, and, and they give you information on uh, what to bet on and what to watch for. It was tons of fun. Hoping to go back there soon. I'm so, so thankful that he was able to take me and my friends, as I mentioned earlier, uh, on a tour of Woodbine Racetracks. And it was super cool to be able to see how uh, the production of, uh, you know, bringing uh, a race to air goes. And, uh, of course... Talking to him about uh, also the uh, Chicago sports uh, scene, especially Jake Cutler. I know he hates him so much, Jake Crudler. I happen to like him, but I understand why uh, uh, fans of the team wouldn't love him if he hasn't had a huge amount of success. I totally understand that. So much fun talking to you guys again on this episode, episode 42 of the H-Dog Pod. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bang. This has been the H-Dog Pod with host Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Mm-bye. Mm-bye.